looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Today our theme is about being a competent Christian. You can see that in your notes, and we're going to study that in Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 19. But we really cannot be a competent Christian if we didn't have a very competent Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And today, our worship time, we were singing about worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And I was really telling the Lord, worthy or competent are you, is the one who would die and pay for our sin. And then how deep the Father's love for us, that that love would be so rich and so full for us who are so unworthy of his love and really not deserving of his love, and how competent that the Lord is that he could truly love us and demonstrate that love to us that only a competent God could. And then we, again, sang about trusting in that competency, and that's really important. You know, you can go to a doctor, and he can be very competent, but if we don't follow a doctor's instructions, we may not get the kind of help and help that we need. And then in the last song that we sung was so important because people need the Lord, And they need the Lord because he is competent and he is the only competent one who will save the world from their sin and then bring them into a forever relationship with him. So today we're talking about being a competent Christian, but we know that we can't be any more competent than when we really rely upon the Lord. If I could maybe simply summarize 2 Corinthians 3, 5, it basically would say something like this. Our competency without his competency is incompetency. Did you catch that? Our ability without his ability is our inability. Another way to say it is our efficiency without his sufficiency is deficiency. So we're going to talk a lot today a little bit about being a competent Christian as Paul would speak to that. Uh, How many of you are so grateful for the competent people that God has brought into your life that has really added value to you, maybe provided for you, protected you? I have to think of the litany of doctors that uh, I've had in my life over the many years that I've lived. Ever since I was born and on through the years, I was so glad that I've had good doctors. And then as I got older, I'm so grateful that I've had good attorneys when I had to do my estate planning and purchasing a house. And I'm so grateful that I've had competent accountants that would help me navigate through the many laws and the taxes that keep changing, it seems, every year. So I'm very so grateful for those people. I can only imagine what I would be health-wise and wealth-wise if I didn't have those kind of competent people in my life. And as grateful as I am as those human beings have been given to me by the Lord, I also have to say how grateful I am for the competent Bible teachers and preachers that have come into my life. Have you ever thought about that for a moment? If I didn't have a competent person working on my car, my car would break down and the worst it might break down in such a way that would cause an accident for harm, injury, or death. But when I think of someone who is handling the word of God and he is not competent, there's a greater danger there. The others are maybe momentarily or maybe even a lifetime of of consequences. But if the person is giving me truths that are not biblical or information that's not biblical and I lean into those, then my problem is going to be eternal. So when we're getting into the word of God, we want to make sure that we are having competent Bible teachers and preachers to be able to communicate the word to us especially if a person doesn't know Christ as Savior. If someone is incompetently explaining the salvation and in any way giving that message of salvation and dropping into it 
the thought of or requirement of doing some amount of good works, whether you think about it or actually perform it to either get saved or to stay saved, and maybe even adding it to faith in Christ, adding works to grace, that's a very incompetent message. And if a person believes that, the consequences will be horrible for all eternity. And then you have others who are believers in Christ, and if you have an incompetent Bible teacher in that realm, the result could be that your Christian life, in a sense, could take a turn that would not be biblically accurate and could really confound you and cause a lot of heartache relationally with other people, perhaps decisions that you make, and then eventually you'll have to give an account of it at the judgment seat of Christ and how dangerous that is. Now, the good news is, is that God is still going to be providing us truth and reveal that to us even when we're fed incompetent teaching. So I want you to know the value of being competent in God's word, but also in applying God's word. A lot of people can have good, competent knowledge from competent Bible teachers, but they are not competently relying upon the Holy Spirit to live that out in their life. So now we're in a section of scripture in Romans, Romans chapter 15, which is really towards the end of this letter that Paul wrote to a group of believers in Rome that he never met yet, all right? He hadn't been there yet, and he's on his way wanting to be there with the church at Rome. And so he's writing this material to him, and he's at the end. And I'm so grateful because inside Paul was this desire to give truths in a competent fashion to all those that are at Rome, and by extension, to you and me today. And so he competently covered the doctrine of sin, letting us all know that we're depraved and horribly lost and separated from God and dead in our sins, in fact. And then he competently explained to us that salvation was not by works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, and it's not by any good deeds that we do. Then he competently explained that nothing will separate us from the love of God so we can never lose our salvation. Then he competently explained to us what it means to be set apart for a purpose for the glory of God, the exchanged life and yieldedness unto him. And then he competently explained to us how that we can serve the Lord through our spiritual gifts that we have and following the biblical principles of connecting with one another and responding to them, whether our church people or unchurched people or enemies, whoever they might be out there. Well, now he's coming to the close of his letter and instead of just talking about sin and salvation and security and sanctification and the sovereignty of God and how great he is, as well as talking about service, he is now what I'd like to call bringing us to the summation of this book. Now, some of you that have written long letters to people, I'm sure you want to communicate a lot of information to them, but you know when you're coming to a close, there's that last little bit, so you don't just chop it off and walk away. You want to kind of land the plane. Well, that's what he's doing now, and he's landing the plane. And I believe from the section of Scripture that we're going to learn today that we're going to learn some aspects about being a competent Christian. And I hope it will bless you as we go through these and how important that is. So let's look at number one. What is the first thing that he does as explaining what would be a characteristic of a competent Christian? I believe it would be someone who would pay sincere compliments to others. And I get that in verse 14. And if you follow along, I think you can see it. He says this, and concerning you. So he moves away from all those big doctrinal truths and he comes into his summation now before he goes into his autobiography and he says, my brethren. So that means again, he's speaking to those that know Christ as Savior. And he says, I myself am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able also to admonish one another. So he's going to pay a, a wonderful compliment to them. And so I began to do this study on Paul complimenting others. And in order to do that, 
I had to understand what's the difference between complimenting someone and giving someone flattery. Have you ever noticed that? Because sometimes you could tread on very thin ice when you think you're complimenting someone, but that person is maybe receiving it more as flattery. Or maybe you are really flattering that person and they think it's really a compliment. So what's the difference between the two? Well, a compliment is much different. A compliment is expressing genuine admiration, praise, and appreciation or congratulations to the person. So what you're doing is that you're saying back to that person something that that person has been able to accomplish that has maybe positively influenced your life, and you're giving them that in a way that will affirm them or encourage them. That is a compliment that you're giving to them. Now, flattery is a little bit different. Flattery is trying to compliment someone, but with an insincere motive, perhaps to gain their favor. Let me say that again. Perhaps when you're flattering someone, you're giving them a praise that is insincere, that you may either not genuinely mean it, or you're saying something about them that they really are not like, but you're doing it in some measure to gain favor from them. And that would be flattery. And when I got thinking about the Apostle Paul, there'll be some of you that have read the Apostle Paul a lot, and when you read his writings, you're going to find that he was maybe referred to um, as an angry apostle. You'll notice a lot of times he is warning those people out there, like in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians, so you might see his warning. Then when he teaches, he teaches boldly, and so you might pick up some of his anger from that. And maybe when he preached, he preached fearlessly as you follow him through the book of Acts. And when you see that about him, you might think that he's one of those angry type guys. But if you really read the writings of Paul, you're going to find that he was a very balanced communicator of truth and wanting to engage people. Yes, he did warn them, he did teach them, he did um, preach to them, but at sometimes he would also give them compliments. And I'd like to encourage you, for some of you that would like to kind of liven up your quiet time with the Lord, is look for all the ways that Paul complimented them. Let me just give you some general ways. First of all, he complimented groups of people like an entire church. Other times he would compliment individuals directly to them. Others, he would compliment people about other people to them. In other words, saying something nice when the person wasn't there about that person to another group. You'll find that he did that in the book of Ephesians. He did it in the book of Colossians. He did it in the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. He did it in in Titus. So scripture is replete with many places where he complimented other people. So let me ask you, when was the last time that you received a genuine non-flattery compliment, an authentic compliment back to you. Do you remember how good that might have felt? I know that when sometimes I get a compliment, sometimes I have to wonder, is this uh, just being nicer? I'm sure they really mean it, but how much is really behind it? You stand at the back door as a preacher, that was such a nice message. Oh, that was such a good, oh, good, I love that message. You know, you, you wonder, do they really get all of that? Now, I know from now on that has cut out every one of you from saying anything nice about my messages. I get that. But on the other hand, beyond the niceness, when you received a compliment. Well, let me go a little bit deeper about complimenting because a lot of times we would compliment. You might compliment your daughter and say something, wow, you are so pretty. And that might make her feel real good. And I imagine very much that you're very genuine. You might say to your son, son, I want you to know that you're really a smart guy. I don't mean a smart aleck, but you're really a smart guy. Now, those are all wonderful compliments, but in many ways, how beautiful your daughter might be and how smart your son might be Those things often are not things they can control. That's where I'm going with this. They can't necessarily control how beautiful they are or how intelligent they are. 
But what they can control are the choices they make for like your daughter, the kind of clothes she might select to wear to the proper place, how she puts on her makeup, the time she takes to fix up her hair. And so those are things that she can control what she does with her beauty and how she uses it. You can, can, you can compliment your son. Your son could be complimented on such things as, I really appreciate it, the way that you have uh, maybe stepped aside from your phone and computer and you worked on your homework. You worked on that project and you were diligent. And not only that, you did it a couple of times so that you could raise the level of excellence. And besides all of that, you even turned it in on time. And now look, son, you got a good grade. And so now it's not about something he can't control, his intelligence, but it is about what he can control, which would be the things that he does to acquire that kind of knowledge. So I'm trying to help you that as Christians, as we move into the new year and we want to affirm people, why don't we look for things that they could control based on the choices that they made that were good choices? Now, I'm saying that for a reason. I'm saying that because while Paul complimented the Christians here at Rome, there are really three compliments he paid them at the end, Romans chapter 15. But it's really kind of ending a series of teaching because actually in Romans chapter 1, he started with the first compliment, which I'm wondering if that is the underpinning of the rest of the compliments. And so let me just briefly tell you what that was. In Romans chapter 1 verse 8, he basically said this. He complimented them on their faith. In other words, they had faith. And I think that's really where it really begins when someone has faith. Now, faith, I know, is an inside job. It's where inside I am fully depending upon the Lord and his word to either work through me or to do something for me, whatever it might be. I am trusting God to move forward. Now, that faith, although it's a passive faith inside of us, the genuine part of that faith is when it comes out from us, and now we live it out by being different and acting differently. So in other words, I can say I have faith, but it's not true faith to others unless it's evidenced. And if you look into Rome, in, in the first chapter of Romans, you're going to find that that was faith that they demonstrated. So that began the first part of it. He starts out by saying, you have this faith. Well, let's back up and get a bird's eye view of this. It's interesting because he has people here that he knows about, and the first thing he does before he loads them up with the Magna Carta of the faith, Romans, he gives them a compliment. What better compliment can someone give us than we would be complimented for our faith and perhaps our love for one another like he does to the Thessalonians and others. So he starts out by complimenting them genuinely. So the people are now settling down. Oh, we have some faith. We've done some things. And now he lowers all this doctrine on them. But then he ends it by giving them something positive again, and he pays a compliment in three areas. So let's look at these three areas. And when we do, I want you to think about yourself. If you were to have a compliment paid to you, what would be the greatest compliment, the one you'd be the most humbled by, the one you'd be perhaps most surprised by in your life, that someone could say that of you? What would it be? Your dependability, your courage, your compassion, I don't know what it might be. Well, what might it be? Well, Paul, an outside observer, not being to Rome yet, somehow got word that there were three characteristics that he could pay a compliment about to these Roman people once they've demonstrated their faith. And here they are. Let's look at number one. The first one is found almost in the verse right at the beginning. And look at it with me again, if you will, beginning to verse 14. He says, and concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourself, you yourselves are full of goodness. So we're going to call that moral goodness, that he could look at them and say, you know, I know that you are morally good. Now, I can say that for those that are Christians, one, brethren, 
Secondly, you are morally good because once you've trusted Christ as Savior, partaker of his divine nature, and we know that God is good. We know he's great, but God is good all the time. I get that. But he's good and he lives inside of you. You now have access to what is known as the fruit of the Spirit. So if you're a partaker of his divine nature, you have Christ in you, God in you, the Spirit in you, and with that is the fruit of the Spirit, which is going to be love, joy, peace, etc., and goodness. So you have latent within you the capacity of God to be a good moral person in you. And now you unleash that by walking by means of the Spirit. So there's some goodness about you. And he could look at them and say, what a morally good group you are. Now, as I look at that, and he's saying here to you all, I would like to have our church known on our island as, you know, those people in international, it's not just that they got a cool church or, yeah, they got great music or they've got some neat people. I would like our island people to look over at international and say, there's a church that they are demonstrating great faith. And out of that great faith is showing a tremendous amount of goodness. They are good people. So think about that a moment. In order for us to have that reputation, that means individually we have to have that reputation of being morally good. But he doesn't just stop there. He goes a little bit further. He then says, besides their moral goodness that he had to really accentuate, he says, but they're filled with all knowledge. So he says, you yourselves are filled with all knowledge. I'll call that a deep knowledge. Now that deep knowledge, I believe, is a deep knowledge of God. And it seems a little odd because he's commending them on this deep knowledge that they had, not just general knowledge, but deep knowledge. But he's also gave, he also gave them more knowledge because if you read all of Romans, you're going to see how much more he added to that just from his letters. So they're receiving new information that they haven't even applied yet uh, intellectually or theologically. They're just hearing it as being read to them. And now he's saying all the knowledge that you have, and now he's implying that you're going to have more knowledge built on that. So here's what I'd like to say to you. I believe that you have been given, at least over the last 10 years, a lot of good Bible knowledge. You've had exposure to some great teachers in Sunday school. There's been some wonderful small group leaders, facilitators in the neighborhood that you were able to attend. I believe that we've covered, I don't know how many books here from Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, James, 1st Peter, the Gospel of John, and now Romans. So you've had a lot of knowledge given to you, and I commend you on that. That is not any way of a put down. But I also want you to know that I believe this coming year, you're going to be exposed to even more knowledge. So while I want to commend you that you are filled with all knowledge to this point, it's not like it's capped. It means you've got your tank filled this far because you've had this much much exposure. Those of you that have taken advantage of that as often as you can has been there for you. You've got that exposure. But I promise you that there's going to be more knowledge coming at you, more opportunities that you can be exposed to more knowledge. So build on what you already know, line upon line, precept upon precept. The best is yet to come for all of you. I'm so excited for what the future holds for each one of you, for the seminars that are coming in, for the small group studies that will be launched, for the Sunday school classes and curriculum that will be available to you. It is all right there so that perhaps later on I could write back to you all and say, man, I just want to commend you on the knowledge that you have. But it doesn't stop there. He goes into one more, and I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this because I think this is real practical. Goodness is kind of a general statement. I get that. And being filled with knowledge is important, all knowledge. But notice what he says, you yourselves, I'm convinced that you yourselves are also able to admonish one another. And that's where we get the phrase competent to counsel. There is a book that is out today. It's a, perhaps a classic book on counseling. 
I would encourage all of you to get it, especially if you are ever thinking about wanting to come alongside other people to give them some admonition. I don't mean the bony finger of wrath, of anger at them, but you want to come alongside them to perhaps take them from where they are that might be going in a wrong direction and then redirect them into a right direction, but you want to know how and why I should do that. The book, again, is called Competent to Counsel by Jay Adams. It's not the only book that's out there, but it is one that every household should have. So I would encourage you to get that and read it. And read it slowly and carefully and understand what it's really trying to say. Well, let me go back for just a moment and talk about that idea of that competency here, that admonition or admonishing one another. Actually, that comes from the word called nutateo, which in the book you're going to find is called nuthetic counseling. Now, when you hear that, it's kind of like, that's just a word. I want to get on with my afternoon. But you need to really understand what nuthetic counseling is. First of all, let me explain what counseling in general ought not to be. And that would be coming alongside someone and giving them what we might call a little bit of tea and sympathy, or a little bit of, you can do it, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, don't worry about it, oh, you got a raw deal, I'm so sorry, you poor victim. It's not that. There are ways to empathize and sympathize and to let them know that you you love them and you care for them and you're trying to understand where they are. And that's important for you to connect and all that's there. But if you're going to change their mind to change their life, then we have to do what is known as nuthetic counseling. So let me explain it to you by giving you a couple of definitions of it. Listen very carefully because those of you who are parents, when you have children, you're already wanting to do nuthetic counseling with them. You want to redirect their attitude, redirect their behavior. So you're helping them with that. But when they get older, it's going to have to go much deeper to find out what the reasons are why and how to make those changes. So here it is. One scholar said this. He said that nuthetic counseling is an appeal to the mind where opposition is present, meaning there's opposition to sound truth and lifestyle, and you're appealing to the mind where they're opposing what is sound truth and lifestyle. Go on. He says, the person is led away from a false way. In other words, they're going in the wrong direction. They're led away from that wrong direction through warning, instruction, reminding, teaching, and I like this, encouraging. Let me give those again to you. It's leading them away from a false way through warning, instruction, reminding, teaching, and encouraging. Now, what might help you is if I did open up that book I recommended to you, Competent to Counsel by Jay Adams. Here's what the author says, who's popularized that term. He said, the fundamental purpose of nuthetic confrontation, which is that ability to admonish one another, he says, the fundamental purpose of nuthetic confrontation then is to effect personality and behavioral change through personal conference and discussion, which is counseling, directed toward bringing about a change in direction of conformity to biblical principles and practices, motivated by love and with the use of scripture for the glory of God. Now that's a big bite of the apple. Basically, what he's saying is we have to understand that this person is wrong, not our standards that they're wrong. We have to understand the word well enough to know that they're thinking. What they say, think, and do is wrong. We know that. We have to love them enough to come alongside them and with encouragement and love, change their thinking so that it'll change their attitude, that'll change their behavior, so it'll fall in line with biblical principles, all for the purpose of bringing glory and honor unto the Lord. That's the kind of person we need to be. 
Generally, I think we probably in this church knows that. The real question I have is, are we a church that has the courage and maybe the compassion to actually do that in a very loving way and to create that environment? And it doesn't mean that we're going to fellowship groups and activities with our little clipboard and looking how everybody is living and then checking it off if they're doing something wrong and then coming alongside them and just blast them. But it does mean that we love them enough to accept them where they are, but love them even more not to leave them there and through a sense of counseling to help them get to the next level. Now, I understand that not everybody's ready to receive it. Sometimes they have to take it in small bites. Sometimes it's a long process. But at the same time, he is Paul is commending, complimenting these Christians at Rome by saying, you have the ability to nuthetic counsel other people. And I pray that we would be able to do that as well, how important that is. I'd like to say a little bit more about that nuthetic counseling from a broader perspective. And this is my whole message. But at the same time, if we're going to be a church that really wants to help one another and all the people that I believe with all my heart are going to be visiting and coming into our church in this next year. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us Make It Clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Thank you.